I've always been a bit too timid to take drugs, apart from a little Mary Jane and uh, a brief experiment with cocaine at a Hollywood party. But I find them a wholly fascinating subject. And when I think of them, five names come to mind. Number one, Timothy Leary. I spent a fascinating weekend uh, as a tour guide for Timothy, taking him around Sydney and, while remaining leery, pun intended, of his advocacy. Then uh, Michael Pollan, who's been on the program quite a few times, as you know, that great enthusiast uh, for psychedelics. Oliver Sacks, heavens above, my dozens of encounters with Oliver come to mind. And, of course, he was very much into self-experimentation. The fourth name you won't know, and that's a Melbourne psychiatrist called Dr John Diamond, uh, now the late John Diamond, and he was desperate for me to be a guinea pig in his uh, experiments, completely legal, uh, with LSD, but uh, I wasn't brave enough and I've often regretted it. The fifth name, the fifth name is my guest, and... uh, that is Mike J. Mike is uh, an author and an expert in the history of mind-altering substances, and his books uh, include Artificial Paradise, High Society, and Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. Now, you might think that experimenting with um, psychoactive substances began in the, in the 60s, But in Mike's new book, he reveals that there's actually been a long intellectual tradition of drug use that stretches back into the 19th century. The book, called Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind, uh, explores how some very famous doctors from, uh, well, Sir Humphrey Davy to Sigmund Freud got high in the name of science. And it's a delight to welcome Mike to our little wireless program. Mike, welcome. Thanks very much indeed. It's a real pleasure to be here. I have to ask you, what the hell is a psychonaut? Psychonaut is a is a great word. You hear it around a little bit these days in the sort of uh, in the psychedelic community. Uh, people use it to describe themselves. It was originally coined by a German novelist in the 1940s, Ernst Junger, who wrote a futuristic novel in which there was a kind of cadre of uh, scientists who synthesized new drugs and used them to explore the hidden reaches of the mind, and that's. Uh, really what my book is about. Uh, and there wasn't a word for that until uh, Ernst Junger came up with the word psychonaut. So I've um, claimed it for my title. I have to ask you this. Have you self-experimented? Yeah, I have. I've been writing about this subject, as you mentioned, for quite a while, going back into the distant eras of my my youth, when I self-experimented with uh, pretty much everything that was, that, that was around. And um, and survived to tell the tale. I, yeah, I was I was pretty cautious, as uh, quite a lot of the psychonauts in my book are as well. Uh, that's one of the reasons why psychonaut is such a useful word, because self-experimenter was a word that was commonly used at the time because scientists used to self-experiment in all kinds of ways with uh, 
um, you know, putting you know strong electric shocks through their bodies and inhaling toxic gases and everything. So actually, my point is that their experiments with drugs, which were normally quite you know safely controlled, were probably among the less dangerous. So yeah, I did, and I started looking at the history of drugs, and it turned out all to be written by people who hadn't taken any drugs. And uh, uh, it also turned out to be just full of these fascinating accounts of, you know, beautifully articulate descriptions by doctors and scientists and philosophers uh, trying to describe what the effects of these drugs were like. So I got fascinated by that material and immersed myself in it. And, uh, you know, that's really what I'm showcasing in this book. Well, your writings are revelatory. I didn't realise that uh, in the early 19th century, we're not talking about a counterculture so much as very respectable, respected figures of what could be described as the establishment. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you mentioned um, Humphrey Davy, who was uh, later to become Sir Humphrey Davy and uh, president of the Royal Society and the great scientific hero of his generation and he started his first sort of step on the rung the ladder of fame was uh, working as a chemist in a gas laboratory testing possible medical applications for gases and he synthesized this gas that was uh, very little known at the time called nitrous oxide which people believed to be poisonous but he inhaled a bit and discovered but not only was it not poisonous, but it produced a rather pleasant sensation. And he carried on inhaling it and eventually kind of had this uh, disembodied experience where he found his mind or his, his intellect floating around in this dimension he'd never encountered before, where everything seems to be thoughts and ideas, and he'd left the material world behind. So he came back and was, you know, naturally, that was uh, a lifetime's worth of fascinating questions. You know, how can some chemical that, uh, you know, probably doesn't exist in nature have this incredible effect on the mind and particularly on the higher reaches of the mind, the imagination and the spiritual sense? You know, what could be the explanation for that? And also, what did this mean? Was this just simply some weird glitch in the brain, a malfunction? Or had he actually gone to some other place? And if he had, was it some part of the mind that he'd never normally be able to have access to? Or was it actually, you know, another dimension out there somewhere? Now, we all know, of course, of Sherlock Holmes with his uh, devotion if not addiction to opium, but uh, did these pioneering doctors ever, well, did things ever go wrong? Yeah, they were very, very careful to make sure that uh, they were not mistaken for what we would now call recreational users. So uh, they were kind of, um, they, there was this kind of protocol that got going really at the beginning of science, because, you know, modern science was all based on experiment. Everything had to be shown by experiment. So you would record, you know, the time of uh, that you took your dose, what the size of your dose was, you know, then, you know, 30 minutes later, the onset and the first effects and so on. So it was all very much about being a trained observer. But nonetheless, people did take doses that were much larger than they, than they realized. And, um, 
you know, there are some many, many descriptions of nightmare experiences where somebody's taken a little bit of hashish, at least it looks like a little bit. It's maybe the size of a sugar cube, and that turns out to be enough to uh, leave you polaxed for hours, hallucinating <laughs> and unable to move or speak. So there's, yeah, there's a fair amount of that. Tell me about James Young Simpson, who was a Queen Vic's physician. Yeah, he was. He was uh, Britain's... Uh, leading obstetric surgeon, and he delivered uh, Queen Victoria's babies. And he was fascinated when uh, over across the pond in America in uh, the 1840s, people started using uh, ether uh, and nitrous oxide as anesthetics, surgical anesthetics. He adopted them very quickly, but he was convinced there had to be something better than ether, which is a pretty rank kind of petrol smelling and very flammable. So he self-experimented uh, in his home up in Edinburgh with all kinds of different gases and solvents, trying to find something that wasn't toxic and didn't give you a splitting headache or you know cause uh, liver damage or anything. And uh, eventually... He lighted on uh, chloroform and uh, he sat around his uh, big mahogany dining room table with a couple of friends and uh, inhaled it. And then um, the next thing he heard was these big loud thumps as his fellow experimenters <laughs> hit the floor. And the next thing he knew, he was looking up at the underside of his mahogany table and they all went, wow, this stuff really works. And they just sat down to do it again. Sorry, within a year you, or two. Mike, you're making me laugh, and this is meant to be a serious, <laughs> a serious conversation. But, of course, it was no, a transformational right. moment, wasn't it? Well, it was, and very shortly he was using uh, chloroform on um, Queen Victoria for childbirth. This is LNL on RN, and I'm having a dangerous discussion with Mike Jay about the, his fascinating new book, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. There were other doctors who believed that self-experimenting with drugs could uh, help them gain insight into troubled minds and patients. Tell me about Jean-Jacques Moreau's experience with hashish. Yeah, Moreau, Jacques-Joseph Moreau, he was a, what we would now call a psychiatrist. He In the mid-19th century, he was a resident physician at a mental hospital outside Paris. And he became very interested in hashish when he visited Egypt and uh, saw people using it there. And he eventually took one of those very large doses that we were talking about earlier and found it fascinating on many levels, not least uh, as a mind doctor or a psychiatrist, because as he said, you know, we spend all our time trying to treat people who are suffering from deliriums and hallucinations. And, uh, you know, if you take a large dose of hashish, you experience these things yourself and you get all these classic symptoms, the, uh, you know, distortions of time and space, the paranoid ideation. And he was, uh, Moro was a doctor who believed in walking you know as far as you could in your patient's shoes but the one place he could never accompany his patients was over this threshold into madness so he recommended hashish to other doctors he said you know we're trying to understand these states of mind and we can't experience them except now we can because we could take a large dose of hashish and get a sense of what this is like and then 
come back to reality safely. Mike, let's do a uh, segue to the sainted Sigmund because I understand that Mm. Freud experimented with cocaine when he was uh, still a student. Yeah, at his early stage in his career, he became, uh, this is before psychoanalysis, he became very interested in cocaine. And just at the point when cocaine was becoming a hugely popular pharmaceutical remedy, it was uh, within a few years, it was uh, sold in pharmacies everywhere and all kinds of preparations as a cough medicine, as an antidepressant, as a pick-me-up sort of stimulant like energy drink. And Freud was writing at the beginning of this and uh, writing uh, papers describing what cocaine did, and he based this on his own experiments with it. Uh, And he wrote about them in the first person, and he described the kind of euphoric sensation it produced. He talked about how good it was for helping him to work for mental energy. And he'd also diagnosed himself with depression. He was very overworked at this time and wrung out, and uh, he became a great advocate for it, a bit too great of an advocate, because... His medical expertise led him to uh, endorsing various companies' pharmaceutical products. So when it became obvious a few years later that cocaine in large doses was extremely bad for you, then people pointed the finger back at Freud. I had Uh, no idea he'd been in mm. the marketing game. Yeah, and I think he was... uh, Since then, I mean, of course, Freud wasn't Freud as we think of him now, and cocaine was not yet this demonized drug. But once it was, everybody looked back at Freud and went, what on earth did he think he was doing? You know, he must have been a cocaine addict. That was incredibly reckless. But I think if you look at it, the problem was the opposite. You know, Freud was a pretty sober, serious person. He only ever took cocaine in quite small doses when he'd taken one He didn't feel like taking another one. So he was totally blindsided when people started injecting huge amounts of it and going crazy. You mentioned uh, very briefly in passing that the drug was also of great interest to the general public at the time. And I'm thinking of a certain drink. Right. You're thinking of Coca-Cola? Indeed. Uh, Yeah, well, Coca-Cola was... um, appeared in the, the United States at the in the 1880s, and it was originally marketed as the temperance drink. This is the time when people were starting to get very worried about the amount of alcohol in culture and the ways in which people were getting drunk. So there was a big temperance movement, and uh, Coca-Cola was originally advertised as the temperance drink. This is a drink where you didn't have to go into a bar and drink whiskey. Why not have this <laughs> stimulant that will make you smarter and more energetic? Mike J, you're trying to get me laughing again. but uh, <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> what, a, what a paradox. Now, mm. take, take us to uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes, well, I think oh, it's a it's a great book. I love it. It's got there's many different ways you can read it, but it's very obviously about scientists self experimenting with drugs and what might happen if you do, and what if a drug, you know, like maybe cocaine, might uh, manifest this sort of second self, this sub personality, turn you into a different person. And there's a lot of literature and short stories and fictions about uh, drugs and self experiment at this time because the public are fascinated by it. All these uh, drugs are in the pharmacy, and there are 
some people in the medical and pharmaceutical profession they're going this is this is great this is the future this is one of our most wonderful discoveries of our modern civilization there are other people going these substances are dangerous and addictive so there's a big public conversation and a huge appetite for fiction that uh, takes these stories so like as Jekyll and Hyde does, or there's lots of stories by people like H.G. Wells about scientists taking strange drugs and having strange experiences. And I think, you know, if you look at browse through Netflix today, you know, you, you, it'd be hard to count the number of uh, series there that are based on the idea that, oh, there's some new drug come along that changes your mind or gives you limitless possibilities. Or, you know, somebody, it's, uh, there are drug trials that people are participating in that start going wrong. So I think we're still very familiar with these kind of fictions today, which tap into our fascination with drugs and their possibilities and their dangers. I think Netflix is a form of addiction, but that's for another program. <laughs> now, Mike, I did mention already Sherlock Holmes. Was Conan Doyle into drugs? Conan Doyle was uh, a doctor and he knew all about drugs. Uh, there's quite a lot of... Uh, references to poisons in his uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, and most of them are pretty accurate. But it's very interesting now to think about why, when he created his famous detective, he gave him a cocaine-injecting habit. And it's not just a casual thing. At the very beginning, this is really kind of his main motivation. In The Sign of Four, that early novel, it starts with the scene that we maybe remember of... Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes injecting cocaine and Watson very disapprovingly saying, why do you do that, Holmes? It's very bad for you. And Holmes saying, yes, but my mind craves stimulation. So that's the reason I do my detective work is to give me, you know, abstruse and complicated puzzles to solve. Because if I don't have a case, then I just inject this cocaine. So uh, it's kind of pretty much uh, central to the Holmes story. And I think it made him a very, he's a different kind of detective. He's not kind of some moral figure trying to smash crime he's just trying to keep himself amused that's why i much preferred that nice belgian detective he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't do drugs now let's talk about the early war on drugs because the use of psychoactive substances is suddenly banned that's right and this and this is actually the point at which the word drugs as we've been using it emerges uh I always assumed growing up that drugs had kind of always been illegal and always been banned. But, uh, you know, back in the period we've been talking about in the 19th century, the word drugs just meant, you know, all medicines, like anything you get in a drug store. And it's only in the early 20th century that we start to get the word drugs in this sense, because uh, until that point, a lot of what we now call drugs you could just buy over the counter in a pharmacy, you know, whether cocaine or cannabis or heroin. And around the early 20th century, people start to recognize drugs as a problem, including, of course, alcohol. This is the period where we're in America marching up towards alcohol prohibition. So you start to get this idea that drugs are a problem, and this word drugs comes along and it has all these negative connotations. It means dangerous drugs or addictive or often foreign drugs, drugs and, and start then, to be associated. And, yeah. and then it takes on a racial element, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Once you've got the idea of drugs, then you've got this stereotype of the drug user. You didn't really have that before. So who is the drug user? And, uh, you know, they're often, it's often 
a, a kind of lower class slur and particularly directed at ethnic minorities. And there's a there's a lot of uh, you know conversation at the time, and a lot of the medical literature about addiction is all about the uh, you know problematic habits of inferior races, and you know opium gets associated with the Chinese in America, cocaine with the black population of the southern states, and so on. So what had before been something that was, uh, you know, pretty much generally available in society, suddenly becomes stigmatized and associated with undesirable classes of people and eventually criminalized. Now, Mike, before I let you uh, go back to your favorite opium den, uh, <laughs> what do you make of the current revival of interest in, uh, in psychedelics pushed on the program quite recently by Mike Pollan? Yeah, I think uh, Michael's done a fantastic job of explaining what this is about and advocating it. And crucially, you know, it's a, it's for him, it's all about self-experimentation. I think that's the reason why people love his books. You know, there's a huge scientific literature now when you could read all about, you know, the you know neurochemistry and neuroplasticity. But what people really want to hear is, I think, you know, what, what it's like to take these drugs. And Michael describes them beautifully. And uh, I think uh, there are various reasons. It's something that's been building for for, for quite a long time. Uh, people back in the original psychedelic era of the 1950s and 1960s, you know, we started to introduce the idea that drug experiences might not always be bad. They might be beneficial. They might lead to personal growth. They might be therapeutic. They might give us mystical experiences. And it seems that that, uh, that wave of interest and fascination has built to the point where psychedelics have kind of detached themselves from this bigger <laughs> stigmatized category of drugs and become something kind of future futuristic and scientific and fascinating. Well, after a life of timidity, I am sold. Thanks for that, uh, Mike. <laughs> it was uh, literally mind-altering talking to you. Mike is an author, journalist and cultural historian. His new book, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind, is published by Yale University Press. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.